Okay. We are working our way uh, toward the end of Romans chapter 4. I did want to ask you, I wanted to remind you guys to, um, tomorrow is our, our prayer day, and, and I'm assuming you probably even pray more than just Mondays, but um, be praying for or hunting for a pastor to come and, and teach and shepherd here. And, uh, I've, I've spoken with a couple, three or four um, men so far, and, and one of the big challenges for them is um, is the amount of money that we have to, to give someone an allowance with. And so most guys aren't able to be bivocational. And uh, so that kind of is an obstacle to some folks. So just remember that when we're praying. We're praying for a, a person who's not going to be daunted by that and will be able to um, find the Lord's provision sufficient. And I'm just going to be patient and pray for the, for the right guy to respond to our need here. <clears throat> Romans 4. Uh, looking for my verse 11 here. We're going to be starting today at uh, Romans 4.11, where it begins, and he received the sign of circumcision. We're speaking about Abraham. And today our, our message is about heirs of the sure promise. Heirs of the sure promise will get mentioned in our, our text here. As you recall, last week, um, the text asked a, a question about Abraham's blessing. The, the text was wondering, uh, preemptorily for the, for the folks reading and listening to this being read, when was he blessed? When was Abraham blessed? When did Abraham receive the blessing in particular of justification? Or I think it would be right for you to be thinking salvation. When, when was Abraham saved? When, when did Abraham receive this blessing? And, and the logic is obvious once we work our way through the thought here. The, the logic is that <clears throat> if Abraham's blessing took place in material time after circumcision, then in particular, the Jewish thinker and then the later religious thinkers over the course of history, the Jewish thinker, the religious, would see the ritual of circumcision as being the ground of justification. The, the thing that the religious person did results in justification. That's a, a logical sequence of thought, but that's not what the scripture teaches us. And that's why Paul Ask this question. That's where the Spirit is working on your minds and, and your reasonableness. You can easily follow this historic reality of, of Abraham being declared righteous before circumcision. This is a crucial thing happening in the, in the argument of the Spirit here. Abraham's blessing of justification takes place 
before circumcision. He had not done any ritual at all. He had, he had participated in no religious ritual at all. Today we're going to be speaking a little bit about religious ritual and then we're going to be talking a little bit about just kind of basic um, merit making, doing good with the thought of being repaid for your merit. Um, merit is not usually associated with what you guys are studying in the scripture. We don't normally think about uh, Christian merit, but it is something we think about in uh, Buddhism. Buddhism will talk about making merit. And you can ask Son to say it for you in Thai, but something a, a, a Thai person would, would express to you or, or to me how they understand the uh, uh, economy of the religious world is, is you do good and then you get good. This is just how they look at the world. Do good, get good. This is nothing at all like that. Abraham's example of believing God and then being called righteous is nothing to do with religious ritual, nothing to do with do good, get good. And we're just continuing to make this point as we work our way through uh, Romans chapter 4. A similar thing that I, I believe carries over into modern false Christianity would be baptism. There are professing Christians today who would say, I was baptized. And then they would rest their confidence in their standing before God. They would rest their confidence in, in their understanding of righteousness in that, in that religious ritual. I was baptized. And so in some manners, this is a very similar thing. And so they might reply to what Paul is saying here. And, and, and the whole point of this is, is the argument that's taking place in the mind of the religious person. So this person ends up saying, what? You're saying you are saved before baptism? Are you telling me you are saved without being baptized? This is the, the, the essence of the argument that's being made out of Abraham's story. Paul's saying he was saved with no circumcision. And so the average Jew, the average religious Jew is like, what? How, how can that be? How, how can you be making this point, Paul? So he's building on the point that we have been working on for days, and I, I want to challenge you. Resist the urge to say, okay, I get it now. Let's move on from justification. You don't get justification yet. You and I don't get justification. You, you, we, we get it on the surface, but I, I do want to help you go deeper and deeper in our understanding of justification. Justification that saves God's justification is by grace through faith without works. Otherwise, it would not be of grace. It's a point we've covered now two or three times as we're, we're working our way through this. Grace and works are fundamentally opposed from each other. If it's by grace through faith, then it is not by works. If it is by works, then 
It is not by grace through faith. You need to have that firmly understood in your mind because you will have opportunities in your life to hear saving gospel claims that deny these principles. And if you remember this, you'll realize that, no, this isn't a a biblical explanation of, of justification. God's gospel saves sinners the way Abraham is saved. And that's the the big general point we want to make sure we take away. Abraham was saved when he believed God. He was declared righteous when he believed God. And so we want to understand this well enough so we see how it works in our own case. Remember, he made a quotation from Genesis chapter 15, and God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis, the beginning of of the record of of God's interaction with men, this very, very first of the Jews. He, He was so first a Jew, he wasn't even called a Jew. There were no Jews yet. But Abraham is the father of the Jews, and he believed God, and God declared him righteous there in Genesis chapter 15. So, <clears throat> for today's today's uh, kind of the, the the essence of our message today, the gospel and gospel righteousness is for the poor and the hungry. And I'm I'm pulling those words out of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. The, the gospel righteousness is for the poor and the hungry. Let me tell you where we're going with this. It's not for the religious and it's not for the meritorious. The Lord Jesus in his preaching preached against religiousness and he preached against meritoriousness. Religiousness is maybe a little bit easier to understand. What I mean by meritoriousness is this. Many, many, many all over the world believe the things we do somehow situate us so that God owes us heaven. That's a meritocracy. That's a meritorious economy of religion. And so the Lord Jesus did teach against these things throughout his ministry. I'm going to go there for a minute and look at that ministry. And then we're going to come back into Romans chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, in verse 3, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 4. And then we're also going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7. The example in Genesis chapter 4 is going to point you to this regular theme throughout Scripture that shows you how much men rely on religion and religious ritual to put them in a right standing before God. So this passage here in Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 3, you'll remember right where we are as soon as I start reading. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should or you must rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field 
Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. I'm my brother's keeper. And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So Cain brings a gift to God. And and we're going to keep this very general. It's a religious offering. He's bringing something to God. He desires or expects something in return from God in his doing this. It's favor. It's approval. It's 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 something that when when you bring your gift to somebody, you have certain expectations that you you're expecting to hear or receive when you do it. He desires God's pronouncement, maybe of something like well done. You, you, you did what I desire of you. But God tells him, and this is the most clear thing in the passage, God tells him it's wrong. God tells him what he's brought is not acceptable. When, when, when a man does what he does to hear a certain thing from God, and God says, it's wrong. What is, what is a truly religious man's response? What is his response? He, he, he says, I'm sorry, how do I do it right? How do I be accepted before you? And these were God's words to him. If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? And I'm using the word religious here. I'm not using it in the general worldly sense. I'm talking about a man's practices before his God. What a man is doing in his his serving, his worshiping of God. When he does this and God says, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? What is his response? It's rebellion. His response is anger. He's not really interested in pleasing God. He's interested in, in some whole different economy of things in his own heart. He does not and he cannot approve of what God says is right. He does not approve of what God said is right. I use the word right on purpose because remember, righteousness is the gift of God in Christ. That's what justification is. Cain does not like God's definition of right. He doesn't like God's righteousness. He approves of his own. Now, go to Matthew 7. We're going to look at one more example. So this is a religious example. This is man seeking his his rightness before God, doing his own religious practices. This is one way that, that men go about preparing themselves to be properly received by God. Matthew chapter 7 from verse 13, you remember the passage here. The Lord Jesus is teaching, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Remember, we're looking at two broader categories, the the religious and the meritorious, the the, the the spiritually minded person who wants to make offerings or do something for God and then the other group kind of is in a little bit more general category of just doing good things doing things that they believe result in God's approval of them so the Lord in this passage here teaching about the difficulty of finding the road to life that's kind of where we began the first verse that we're reading there the, the road to eternal life that is spiritual life And the Lord saying that many or most choose the broad road to destruction instead there in verses 13 and 14. Many people do their religious services. They they do the deeds they do. They do the, the things that they're doing without really even knowing who God is. They just do what they're doing and they're not even too interested in who God is. And they have no sense of their spiritual poverty they have no sense of their own unrighteousness and I'm borrowing those words from Matthew 5 blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness we have these ones who are traveling their way of life doing their uh, religious deeds They're, they're doing their good things they do with no sense of poorness of spirit with no sense of a knowledge of their own lack of righteousness and the Lord Jesus is kind of highlighting them in this way in this passage here and in verse 15 to 18 of the text we just read he teaches about what is really right versus what is um, apparently right the false prophets in view there have a certain appearance of rightness about them. They, they themselves are confident they're doing right. The false prophets of our day preach about the Lord Jesus, but they teach him falsely. These false prophets use God's word. They, they use the terms of the kingdom. They surely even use the words sin in their preaching and teaching. These, these, these false prophets that are uh, about quote-unquote the, the business of teaching men how to follow God, the Lord Jesus is exposing them. Beware of these ones who call themselves prophets but are false prophets. Beware of them. You have to learn to look for something else. Don't, don't look at the things that are the outward appearances. What do you want to know about? You want to know about their fruits. You want to know about the results of their work and of their lives. In other words, the Lord Jesus was teaching that godly men produce Godliness. There's godly fruits from the lives of godly men and women. So as Cain 
made a show of his godliness. Did, did Cain mean to appear godly? Well, he was acting godly, wasn't he? He brought a, an offering. He makes this appearance of godliness. Was he godly? Well, when we saw the fruit of his anger against God, and we see the fruit of his murder of his brother, we know that Cain is not a godly man. God exposes Cain's lying heart to his face, and that really only makes him mad at God in return. So this passage here in Matthew shows us that a profession or a claim of being his servant, a a preacher, a prophet, is claiming to be a mouthpiece for God. Isn't that what a prophet is? Someone who's pretending to speak for God. Making that claim isn't the same thing as actually being a servant of God, is it? A person who is actually speaking his words, the Lord is saying, is different from the one who just claims to be. We need to learn to look at the fruits of their lives. So, men assert what is right, or they they, they presume to act doing what is right, as Cain had done, or as these false prophets are doing. But they have no dependence or knowledge on God himself. They don't know him. They're not speaking by what they know of him and from him. They're, they're just doing their own thing, disconnected from him. There is no fruit that comes through their faith in him. Remember the, the picture the Lord Jesus gives of, of, of the vine that has its root in him, where it gets its life from him. The, the false prophets, Cain, These workers here in Matthew chapter 7 are disconnected from the life source. They have no faith in, no love of God themselves. They make their own way without God. They never question themselves about what they're doing. They don't know anything actually about God's will. They just do what they want to do in their religious way. They make their own right. The ones we're reading about here in Matthew chapter 7, they do what they're doing. And if we ask them, what are you doing? Are are, are you saying what's right? They would say, of course I'm teaching what's right. Of course I know what's right. But they don't. And interestingly, Christ says what they're doing is lawlessness. He calls them workers of lawlessness there in Matthew chapter 7. And then the Lord says the last words that they will hear from him at the end of the age are, depart from me, I never knew you. Listen to what kinds of things they did. Look at Matthew, uh, let's see, it's seven. Look at the things they do. Try to put my finger on it here. Look at verse 22. Here's how they know they did what was right. 722. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? So they know the right name. They and, and their justification of themselves to the Lord Jesus is we have prophesied in your name. What else did they do? We have cast out demons in your name. We have done Many wonders or or, or mighty deeds in your name. 
Their justification of themselves is to use his name and to claim the things that they're speaking and doing are for him and in him. These are their merits. They're, they're justifying themselves by the things that they have done. They're presenting them to their Lord in a similar way to what Cain had done to God. They're saying, here, look at what we have done. Look at who we are. Look at who we love. And the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And he never, ever, ever truly sought God's righteousness. They were never, ever poor in spirit. They were never hungry for that. They, they just wanted to do their religious works and their religious deeds. They just wanted to do that and they knew. They just knew God will appreciate me for it. God will reward me for it. The Bible over and over again, truly, it, it tells us about men doing what they think is right without understanding that it is their faith in God and this gets us back to Abraham. It is their knowledge of God. It is their faith in God that results in their righteousness as it had for Abraham. The only right thing you will ever do will be what you do by faith in Christ. That's, that's the definition of righteousness. These, these, these ones that are referred to like Cain or like these ones in Matthew 7, they don't know that their own hearts are deceived. They have no spiritual poverty. They have no spiritual poorness. They have no longing for true righteousness in God. They're just happy making it up themselves. They refuse and or they can't bring themselves under God's word. So Romans, and, and, and by the time we get to four here, it is for the man who is spiritually poor. It is for the man who will not be like Cain, who will not be like these ones. There's uh, two or three groups of people here in Matthew chapter 7. Romans is for the one who is poor in spirit and hungers and thirsts for righteousness. The first thing Romans does is expose you to your sinfulness. You remember that? It is so key for you to remember that Romans begins exposing you to your sinfulness. The first, the first thing it levels against you is, is that you would not acknowledge him as God or give him thanks. That's the first charge against men in, in Romans. Sinfulness of men. We say it over and over again, but men must know this. We must know this. Teaching us about our bankruptcy of righteousness. We have no righteousness. Men are godless and they're unrighteous. And so when we get to our little section here where it begins to speak about heirs, heirs according to promise... Not debtors, not in a debt relationship to the law. This is where we really begin to focus in on justification by faith. How to have true righteousness. Not the righteousness of Cain and not the righteousness of 
the false teachers or the, the do-gooders of Matthew chapter 7. Not these kinds of righteousness seekers that the Lord himself had condemned. So when we look at Romans 4.11, let's go to Romans 4.11. We're going to look closely again at this section of the life of Abraham. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith he had while still uncircumcised. So that order being very important. He received the sign, which was a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had, he already had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not Abraham or his seed through the law, But the promise was through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. I gotta make sure I not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So let's just look at a couple of points in the passage here, eleven and twelve. I've said this a couple times already, but it means that belief and justification take place before the sign. Christians have a similar sign in baptism, but belief and justification takes place before the sign. Um, Can you guys recall where the sign takes place in time? It's about 13 years after he receives the promise. And then the law itself comes 430 years Later, So this is pre-law by over 400 years. So the point being made that there is a religious thing that men believed would be the reason of their righteousness, that religious ritual would be circumcision, and he's saying that's impossible because Abraham was righteous before the religious ritual happened. Verse 13 says... Particularly, again, it says that God's promise is by the righteousness of faith. It's just a simple state. This this transaction and this offer is by the righteousness of faith. 14 and 15 contrasts it. It shows why it must be this way. 14 and 15 says you cannot inherit You can't be an heir. You can't have the things of this according to law. Those 
who operate under the principle of keep the law, be rewarded according to keeping the law. Those who operate in that economy, he's saying, don't know or they forget what the law's reward is. What does the law give? What is the reward of the law according to the text here? It rhymes with bath. Wrath. The, the, if, if you are going to operate under the routine and under the guidelines of the law, you can only receive wrath. But what does the promise say you're going to receive? Inheritance. Blessing. And so it can't be under law. You can't get blessing under law. What does the law give? The law gives wrath. Right there in the middle of verse 15. It is the only reward of law. Wide road, broad road religion that the Lord referred to in a passage a moment ago. It seeks and proves its righteousness by a means that can only give wrath. Wide road, broad road religion if, if you're operating in anything other than the faith in Christ principle, then you are on this broad road and the only thing that you can give is wrath. Heirs is actually a really wonderful concept that's uh, referred to here. The heirs who, who get to inherit here implies that those who were rewarded those who get this blessing receive it as a blessing that is the right of the family members. Those who stand in line from their own father receive an inheritance from their father because they are uh, loved and favored members of the family. So we're shown here, at least in a way, that Abraham is the, the head of the family of the believing in this sense here. James 2.5, you don't have to turn there, but James 2.5 just makes a reference. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Inheritors. They, they inherit the kingdom as loved sons, and he has promised to give it to his loved sons. Now, verse 16 has a really important um, feature in here. So let's look at verse 16 for a second. It says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The promise in verse 11 and 12 is for all who believe, circumcised or not. So right up at the beginning of the passage, it was reminding us that this promise is for those who are uncircumcised because the promise was made to the uncircumcised one, right? And the promise is made to the circumcised who would be born after him who share the same faith. So the promise is a certain promise. And this is the point he's making in the last of our verses today, is the certainty of this promise. How can you rely on it? How can you know the certainty of which it can be ours? Well, 
if we get into the verse a little bit, 16, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So how is it kept certain? How is this how is this um, certainty of our, our, our right of inheritance kept in this way? Well, 15 said, the law brings about wrath. And then it goes on in 16, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace. So in order to keep the promise of God, in order to keep this blessing certain, two things are contrasted. And this is one of the last thoughts of the passage here. If the promise was contingent on your works or your law keeping, how certain can you be that you will receive it? Not even a little bit. The certainty is that you would fail. So if, if your apprehension, if you're planning to grab a hold of the blessing by either your religious ritual or by your good works, how certain are you that you're going to get it when everything's said and done? Well, you're absolutely certain you will not get it if it is on those terms. How can you be certain? How can you have hope that it will be yours? That it not be according to law. That's why he is giving the believer some assurance and certainty here. How can you know you can hope to have the righteousness of Christ by faith in him? Because it does not exist under the realm of law. It is not by law. It is by the grace of God in Christ. And therefore you have certainty. What is it you're banking on? What is it that you are resting your confidence in if you want this kind of uh, certainty and assurance? You're resting your hope and your confidence on the truthfulness of the one who spoke the promise, on the ability of the one who made the promise to keep the promise. And it does not exist in the realm where you must surely fail and be punished under the law. It's not even there. It's in a completely different place. Therefore, he said, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, all the seed, those ones who are uncircumcised or those who are circumcised who share the same faith with Abraham. It's a great uh, short little insight into our, our hope and into our Assurance. So finally, we're just going to think for a moment here. The, the text takes us to Genesis 15. It says, Abraham believed God. He heard God. He believed God's promise. He became the father of righteousness by faith. And heirs of this promise share the faith of Abraham. That is, those who hope to find the same uh, blessing of righteousness, not having our sins imputed to us. Those of us who hope to have that, we share this this faith that Abraham has. And so I was just going to ask you a couple of questions about what you believed when you believed. 
When you believed, or even as you're believing now, as you're maybe trying to sort through, have, have I believed with saving faith? Am I rightly anticipating righteousness in Christ because of what I believe? I'm just going to ask you a couple questions. Was that belief or is that belief about your unrighteousness in your sin and the certain wrath of God that was for you. Is that part of how you understand? Is, is your faith built on that premise? Your unrighteousness and the sure wrath of God. Was it your sin toward God and, and your love of false gods and, and your sin toward men and women? And interestingly, in, in Romans 1, 2, and, and 3, it lists probably hundreds of kinds of, of exposed Thoughts and deeds of sin. We could pick any one of those things that's worded there in those chapters and then begin to spell out the different ways they work out and, and the ways that you and I are exposed as, as sinners are just myriad. There's so many ways we see it there. So when you believed God and put your faith in Christ, did it have to do with understanding your own sin before God and against other men? Did you believe or do you believe that without God's righteousness, you would deservedly receive his just verdict of death? Do you believe that he would find you guilty and put you to death because you possess no righteousness? Did you believe or do you believe that God put your sin on the sinless son? Faith means you understand your sinfulness was placed on the sinless Son. Do you believe that? Did you believe that? That the Son died in the place of sinners and He was raised again, it says a little bit later here in Romans, for your justification. Did you believe that? The Gospel teaches us, Romans is reminding us and is teaching us that these are the fundamental terms of unrighteousness and forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. These basic gospel terms explained for us in the book of Romans. The gospel teaches that you join Abraham in Abraham's faith when you believe God in these terms. Do you believe him in this way? Have you sought him for righteousness because you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness? This is how we seek it. This is how we find it.